Guess what, cinephiles? I've just heard something absolutely mind-blowing. Okay, so you know when you search for something on Netflix, what you get is only a tiny fraction of what Netflix actually has. Netflix actually has more than 18,000 titles globally, but only like 6,000 of those are available in the U.S., so you're missing out on literally thousands of great shows, unless you use ExpressVPN. Yeah, Steve, ExpressVPN is an app that lets you change your online location. So like, for example, if you're looking for stuff that's from another country, you're based here in the United States, you actually change your online location to Australia or the UK so you can control where you want Netflix to think you're located. They have over 100 different locations. They're on ExpressVPN. So you can, you can gain access to like thousands of of new shows no matter where you live. And this works with many other streaming services too there. You guys have Disney Plus or Hulu or Max or the BBC iPlayer, which is the one I use. I know I've used ExpressVPN to connect to Australia because I really love this show called Have You Been Paying Attention? I just put myself in Melbourne and I get access to it. You sign up using your email, but you immediately get access to the stuff. I've used the BBC iPlayer to watch a number of shows there on the BBC like Law & Order UK and others. And sometimes this show Guilty that I love that uh, screens there when the new seasons pop up, because it takes like four months to get them on PBS, I watch them there using ExpressVPN. And it's incredible how easy it is and how simple it is to use. So why should you use ExpressVPN? Well, first of all, it is super fast. That means you can stream everything in HD with no buffering. It works on any device. So I'm an Apple guy, which means I've already installed it on my Mac, on my iPhone, on my iPad, and on my Apple TV. I'd install it on my Apple Watch if I could, and it encrypts your data. Now, this is hugely important because it protects your privacy and your security to keep you safe from hackers. So stop missing out on great TV and get thousands of new shows with ExpressVPN. We got them to give you guys three extra months of free use when you use our special link, expressvpn.com slash cinephiles. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S to get three extra months completely free. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. It's Hello, happy Halloween, and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film and we explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. And this movie has a lot of influence, I will say. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My <laughs> name is the outlaw, John Roca. I am a writer, producer, uh, host, and VO guy here in San Diego, California, and uh, really excited for us to finally dive into this 1931 classic that has been on our minds for quite some time on The Cinephiles. And it just seems to have worked out finally this year for us to tackle it. So 
Very excited. A 70-minute film, which is a rarity right. here in, in, the, in the cinephiles, but one that I think we're going to have a lot to discuss uh, and talk about here on the show. Well, strangely enough, this goes back to the early, early days of the cinephiles, because mm. when we first talked about Frankenstein, it was when we talked about not the original, but the sequel, Young Frankenstein, the fantastic- Sequel. The sequel. Did I say sequel? You said sequel. <laughs> I apologize. Yes. Well, well, I mean, it, it is I young. Mean, is it a prequel? <laughs> no, it's young because it's his grandson. It is That's right. technically That's right. the grandson. So I was, I'm going to stand by my statement. It okay. is a sequel in a different genre, yeah. the great Mel Brooks and Gene Wilder movie. And, uh, and it was really in discussions with our cinephiles advisory board as we talked about Halloween films yeah. that they pretty much universally were like, no, you need to do the classic universal monster movie. And we talked a bit about Dracula yeah. versus Bride of Frankenstein versus Frankenstein. And we decided to go with the original Frankenstein. And this is just for everyone listening, the number one way you can affect the direction of the cinephiles and, and hopefully get films that you really want reviewed is to join the Cinephiles Advisory Board, and it's a fantastic tier. We have great meetings every month, and those are where we really, really have long discussions about the direction the show's going. So if you're interested in affecting the direction of the Cinephiles, patreon.com slash the Cinephiles, and check out the Cinephiles Advisory Board. Yeah, if you can't donate at the high roller level that we have out there for you to get that film done immediately, uh, joining the Cinephiles Advisory Board is the way to do it. And as Steve said, We've had a number of wonderful conversations with everybody involved. People have been very excited to be a part of it and contributed a lot of stuff. And of course, Steve and I, at the end of the day, are the final uh, 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 jury on this whole thing and, and and decide where we want to go. I think it's been gr- we think it's been great to hear from everybody on the board, and they've given us some interesting new angles and given us the temperature of the other listeners so that we can make a decision with much more knowledge uh, going forward. And that's been great to see. You know, well. And what's cool too, frankly, mm. everyone on that board, they're serious movie people with yes. serious knowledge. And so the conversations we have every month are just a lot of fun yep. to talk to other, let's say, cinephiles in a deep way about what the great movies are. Yeah. So, John, do you remember how you first came to Frankenstein? Oh, yeah. This is one of those films that was on constant rotation. Again, as I mentioned, on Metro Media 5 in D.C., they would show all the old films, and this is definitely one that I remember watching as a young kid. And the death of the young girl, Little Maria, that stuck with me, you know, more than anything else, the innocence of that moment and the frantic frustration of that, of the Frankenstein monster being like, oh my God, what have I done? What do I, how do I, you know, freaking out about it all? It stuck with me because it was just sadness. So there's just a genuine gen- general sadness of this movie from top to bottom that for whatever reason struck me as a young kid and I always enjoyed watching it. But I'll say this, it's been a very long time since I saw it. And so watching it again for our show was almost like watching it all over again from a completely different point of view. And I really enjoyed it even more so um, older in my life than I did when I was a kid. My story is exactly the same as yours. Mm. I watched it at the same period when I was a kid and all of those movies Wolfman and Bride of Frankenstein and Son of Frankenstein and Wolfman versus Frankenstein and all those, they're all in the same rotation. And when I was a kid, I didn't, wasn't able to put things in context in terms of which, they would just, which came first or how they were connected and, or what was really dumb and cheesy and what was less dumb and cheesy. I, they were just all together, including Abner Costello meet Frankenstein. I was just going to say that. (laughs) Well, and as we mentioned, young Frankenstein. And what's weird is, 
I think I've seen all the other versions and parodies of this movie more than I've seen the movie itself. Mm. I've mm. definitely seen Young Frankenstein more than I've seen Frankenstein. Oh yeah, I would. I ditto, ditto. Yeah, and so and so and it was the same thing. I hadn't watched this in decades. Yeah, so it was kind of like watching it for the first time. And we can't talk about Frankenstein without talking about Mary Shelley, mm. who wrote the book Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus. And the story, I think we talked about it when back when we did Young Frankenstein, but the story is so crazy because. She's on a trip to Europe with who will be her husband, but is not her husband yet, traveling around the country. They ended up camping close to the actual Frankenstein castle. They had lots of conversations about the occult and galvanism and mysticism and alchemy and all of those things with her future husband, Percy Shelley. And they end up near a lake in Switzerland and they're hanging out you know, with Lord Byron and other brilliant uh, writers of the time, as you do, and they're telling ghost stories. And I think it's Lord Byron who says, let's see which of us can come up with the scariest story. Hmm. And he comes up with a story that's about vampires, which which has linkages to what actually becomes Dracula. And Mary Shelley, who's been traveling around and looking at Frankenstein's castle and all of these different things, starts thinking about the idea of life from lifelessness And she can't sleep that night. She stays up all night. And the next morning, she tells Shelley and Lord Byron and the other people they're with about this idea. And Shelley says, you got to write that thing. Hmm. And she was, I think, 16 or 17 years old at this point. She, She writes, sits down and writes the book when she's, or I think she's 17. She sits down and writes the book when she's 18. The book's published when she is 20 years old. Wow. Her name does not go on the book. Right. And I and I think the reasoning is is you know, they didn't think a woman's writing this book would sell. Exactly. It becomes a huge, huge hit. It's only in the second edition that her name goes on the book in 1821. In 1831, she did a rewrite of it, which is the version we sort of have today. Hmm. By 1823, so three years after the book has come out, it is already has five different plays made out of it hmm. that are around London. It becomes just the hottest story around and the frankenstein story is done regularly in all sorts of ways including early silent films up until we get to 1931 and this james whale version yeah um one thing we should say but what i find weird about this and i think this is something that kenneth brana and his version of frankenstein was trying to rectify and (laughs) failed (laughs) but so yeah is that the book is very different from the movie yeah and the movie is what is locked in as the reality of Frankenstein. I think in our minds, yeah. not the book. You know, the 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 book is the monster becomes it becomes well read, becomes extremely articulate, is yeah. absolutely totally brilliant, and all the betrayals of the that go back and forth in the book. That's not really what the movie is. The iconic version of the movie is from James Whale and Boris Karloff. Yeah, it's a much more simplified approach, still with symbolism, still with things yeah. we, we'll discuss here on the show, of course, obviously. But yeah, the book itself, which I enjoyed reading. And, and look, the Dracula book is fantastic as well. I think the I Dracula think, book is better than the Frankenstein book. That's fair enough. I finally read both I, of them, yeah. Yeah, fair enough. And I don't think, but I don't, but I think the Frankenstein movie is better than the Dracula movie yes. in terms of, so I'm glad you agree with that. But the, the, the book itself, I think, Steve, you make an excellent point here. The, the Dracula book is much more intense, much more uh, nuanced of what's going on here. But the Frankenstein book, the commentary here about 
our responsibilities to the things that we create, right? The idea of what well, we're dealing with that now with, with AI. AI, in essence, is our Frankenstein. We 100%. have, in essence, created that, right? And so what do we do with this? What, what we do with the terror that it brings? Can we handle it? Can we control it? And in the end, I think in the end of the book, Frankenstein takes off on an ice flow and leaves mm-hmm. Victor there. Oh, the Frankenstein's monster, rather, takes off on an ice flow. I don't know if it kills Victor or just leaves Victor there, if I remember correctly, but he takes off on his own and we're just like, we don't know where he goes, right? And so, but this, obviously, the film ends completely differently. It's done a monster move as a monster movie. This was Universal's approach. So I guarantee they were like, we don't want to get into philosophical discussions about creator and creation and all this kind of stuff. Let's just get to the basic thing of this, which is a scary uh, creature that you've created. The, you put the wrong brain in there, the Abby normal brain, and it goes and destroys and kills and murders. And at the end is burned in the, in the mill and whatever, but clearly survived since there was a sequel. But like, I, this is where I find the, the two things to be completely different in how they portray this story. And both are effective for each of their mediums. And yeah, you're absolutely right to bring up the Brana film. I had such high hopes for the Brana film because Brana said it was going to be a much more um, faithful in, uh, adaptation to the book. And it was a complete mess. And I still think there is a great Frank's Frankenstein movie that can be made that uses the source material as its base that would flesh out the story and have stronger, interesting commentary to make that would make people fall back in love with the original novel. And maybe someday down the road, it will get made. Did you see the national theater version, the filmed, I think Danny Boyle directed the filmed stage play that starred Benedict Cumberbatch and Johnny Lee Miller as Frankenstein and the Monster, and they switched parts? They so switched sometimes- parts. Yeah, 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 I remember. I saw scenes of it on YouTube. I never saw the whole thing because I know they showed them at Fathom Events. They did like yeah, one yeah, night yeah. screening or whatever. Didn't get a chance to see it, but it was one I was very curious to see. And as you said, Steve, there have been five different play versions of this novel that were uh, put out there in the theater. So it would be fun to see, but I, I think a movie version would be what I would love to finally get a chance to sink into, you know? I did see it and I saw it where Cumberbatch played the monster and it was, it's really good. It's really good. And, and, and closer. It's funny that you bring up the thematically how they're different because emotionally that version is so painful and upsetting. And, you know, spoiler alert, the character of Victor Frankenstein, who is Henry Frankenstein in the movie. Yeah. I do not like that guy. No, he's not a good guy. <laughs> no, he's not a good guy. And the thing, the other interesting oh, thing sure. that we really have to point out about Mary Shelley is there are many arguments that this book, Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus, yeah. is the origin of science fiction. Like this is the first yeah. real science fiction story. And the things that you were talking about, and th- that's why I had the same thought about AI, mm-hmm. of we're creating a thing and we don't know how to mm-hmm. control it or what the hell is going to happen with it. This is a modern we didn't have to worry about this as much in the Middle Ages because technology wasn't moving so fast. But by 1820, when she's writing this book, we're right at the end of the Enlightenment and we're in the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Yeah. And suddenly things are moving fast. And we're they were already seeing the consequences of, you know, coal fire over London and nobody be able to breathe and people right. living close together. And there's tuberculosis and typhoid and all these things going on and going, wait, what's where is this going to take us? Yeah. where nobody's thinking of the future. And that is a lot of what Frankenstein is. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, again, the commentary on what you create, right? If you even strip away AI, let's go back a few years ago, Steve, let's go look at Facebook, right? The creation of Facebook, which covered on the social network. How did Zuckerberg know what this thing was going to be? He was right. creating it out of his own ego and the possibility of what this could mean. Had no idea it was going to blow up the way that it did. And how do you control it? How do you feel? Oh, well, look, a lot of misinformation has been spread on face. You can't control it, right? Just like Frankenstein's monster in the in the novel, he is acquiring information and becoming intelligent. What it does with that information is a whole nother situation. Same thing we're seeing now with uh, Twitter, right? Elon Musk has come in and taken it over and turned it into its own thing after initially it was one thing and has now become something else because it has been influenced by something else. So you see these creations getting changed and depending on what they've been exposed to. And I think Frankenstein, in a way, the monster in the book is um, the monster. I use that term loosely, is uh, reflective of what we're seeing even now today um, in smaller formats and in larger formats when we're talking AI versus Twitter and Facebook. Well, and I would say, right. like, like maybe a little bit of care when Mark mm -hmm. Zuckerberg is starting to expand Facebook or in Twitter or in this moment with AI, yeah. and a little bit of care with the creature, you know, might have stopped things from going in the terrible direction. Yeah, like, yeah, like true. you know, for me, I mean, it's a spoiler alert, but like yeah. the the monster in this movie is not the monster, as far yeah, as I'm concerned. Right. Right, right. The monsters are elsewhere. Anyway, let's say a little bit of pre-production. Yeah. So uh, Universal Studios was not the, it wasn't MGM. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't one of these other studios, Paramount and Warner Brothers. It was, it was a smaller studio. It had a history of doing these monster movies with the great Lon Chaney, including yeah. Hunchback of Notre Dame and the Phantom of the Opera. The thing I never knew. So Carl Lemley is the owner of Universal Studios. Right. I had no idea that he gave the studio as a gift to his son on his 21st birthday in 1929. It said, here you go, run this. Here's the studio. So, and, and, and 29, rough year for a lot of businesses. Hmm. Oh, true. Uh, yeah. uh, and the studio was losing money. They lost $2.2 million in 1930, the year after Carl Lemley Jr. took over. Wow. So that's not looking good. And then he's like, I want to do Dracula. And his dad said, this is a terrible idea. You know, we're going into this depression. Nobody wants to see a scary movie. And he said, no, you gave me the studio. I'm going to make Dracula. <laughs> and so they bring in Bela Lugosi. By the way, I had no idea. I don't know if you knew this, but I had no idea that there, do you know about the Spanish language version of Dracula? No. They shot a version of Dracula. Wow. In, on the same sets on the nights that they were shooting in the day, the English version, oh. they saw on the nights, a Spanish version. Interesting. And it's so crazy to watch because it's just, it's literally on the same sets, somewhat yeah. different shots, somewhat different script. And they went, and so both the Spanish version and the English version were huge hits. The studio made, the studio had lost $2.2 million the year before. They made $700,000 just on Dracula. Wow. And so they went, you know what? Maybe we should do more of these monster things. And so they rushed. Frankenstein into production. And there had just been also in 1929, a new play by Peggy Webling in England of Frankenstein. So they bought it instantly and it was supposed to go to Broadway. And I think because Universal bought the rights, it didn't end up going to Broadway. And who do they want to have play the monster? But Bella Lugosi. Bella Lugosi. Yeah. Cause he just had, they're like, look, you were Dracula. Let's have you play Frankenstein. And the director was not James whale. The director they brought in was Robert Farley. Mm. Um, and they shot 
they said this is what this is what I have read, but it seems crazy to me. But as a film test, they shot twenty minutes of material. Wow, that's and we know the movie's seventy minutes, so that's yeah. a lot to shoot with Bella Lugosi dressed up as the monster. The script was very different. The character was much less sympathetic. There was no dialogue, mm. and look, and the makeup was just terrible. You know, like very very different, and yeah. you couldn't even see Bella Lugosi. And it sounds like he just went fuck this. I'm I'm a big star. I'm not going to not speak in this terrible makeup in this movie that I'm not doing it. That's that's what, from what I've read in the past. That's exactly what it was that in the end the ghost was like, "Wait, I'm not going to I'm not going to speak at all in this thing, then forget it and the makeup and all. It was just too much for him." And it would have been interesting cuz you know, coming off of Dracula to go into a non-speaking role like this, maybe he felt it was a step backwards and as we saw in the movie Edward, which is of course a little bit of a loose interpretation of who Belagosi actually was, there, he had a very healthy uh, image of himself, shall yeah. we say, and so and so he wanted to kind of expand as an actor. Never really did, to be honest with you, but certainly felt he should have, uh, and that was a thing that he carried with him for the rest of his life. You know, it really is interesting that the the difference. By the, between, sorry, sorry. By the way, he wasn't yeah. the only one. Karloff was a pretty cocky guy as well. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah well, it's funny though because that's what I say. It sounds like Karloff had a better sort of working actor attitude about yes. some of this stuff than Lugosi did. Yeah. Lugosi was pretty grandiose. But anyway, that's it for Lugosi. Robert Fl- Flory is uh, out as the director and they bring in James Whale, uh, who recently, very recently, had signed to Universal. He was born very poor, something he covered up later in his life. He was an officer in World War One. He was captured, was a POW for most of the war, yeah. became a successful theater director, became a Broadway director, and then he comes to Hollywood. And this is, and if you watch, uh, you've seen Gods and Monsters? Yeah, the the uh, Ian McKellen, Ben Fraser film, yeah. So that is about James Whale. And from what I've seen, he was, for the time, extremely open about his homosexuality, mm-hmm. for the time, which doesn't say that he was maybe out in the way we'd say today. Right. But in terms, it was, you know, a completely open secret that he was living with his partner of many, many years, and people kind of understood that about him. Um, I haven't watched Gods and Monsters in a long time, but I remember particularly Ian McKellen's performance being just yeah. amazing. One of those independent films at a time when independent films were still still had like a breath and a and a control of the mainstream. That was a nice introduction for Ian McKellen as well. Before the Lord of the Rings stuff, before this other stuff, you could see his work, and of course, a young Brendan Fraser who plays uh, his lover in the film. Um, it's yeah, it's a really interesting movie, and mm. and. I, it's funny. I watched it multiple times because I worked on that DVD, and, and mm. it was definitely one of those movies where every time I watched it, I saw more in Ian McKellen's performance. Yeah. Um. And, and one of the things about that movie is that James Whale very much created an image of himself as the high class British gentleman, which is very much not what his background is. Right. And I think to some degree, you see some of that in this film. Mm. Which would you like to get into Frankenstein? Well, can I throw in a little bit more of pre-production? Or of course. Have, yeah, well, um, first of all, uh, we see the lead in the film, Colin Clive, who, re-watching this time around, Steve, I was really amazed at this young man's performance and what he was able to bring to this character uh, that I know we maybe don't enjoy the character that much, but certainly <laughs> an interesting uh, legacy to leave, but only... Um, 37 years old when he passed from pneumonia. Yeah. This is, and he was a, a alcoholic. He and uh, one of the uh, James Whale got to know him and cast him in a in a play 
uh, and he played the lead as an alcoholic. And the reason he cast him is because he wanted someone who was an alcoholic to play this character as alcoholic. And that's how they kind of became friends and got to know each other. Mae Clark, who plays the love interest, uh, Elizabeth, I think it is in the movie. Mm -hmm. She um, also was part of that play and her and Colin Clyde. Oh, I didn't realize she was in the play. Yeah, she was. That's how James saw her and wanted her to be a part of this and kind of basically just brought the people from the stage onto the screen because James himself wanted to kind of have a shot at doing films. He'd been a scenic designer and a director, as you said. And so them all coming together to work on this is really interesting. But let me tell you, the studio wanted and they didn't go with a young Betty Davis to play the May Clark role. And that did not happen. Uh, in the end, they went to May Clark. So, but Colin Clive, an interesting guy who has a legacy here with his grandfather being one of the big people who were involved in the British Indian situation, as we've spoken about in Gandhi. So the connection here for him, he comes from a long legacy of military people. He went a complete different direction. And a lot of people think it was because he got in, in an accident horse riding and that affected his military career so he turned to acting but it was also what a lot of people felt uh was the reason he became an alcoholic was to deal with the fact that he couldn't go into the military kind of like gary sinise in uh forest Gump, sure. right i have that feeling of like i might have come from a long legacy of people yeah. who died in multiple battles and so he went towards acting and i think for me he delivers a virtuoso performance in this film and i just wanted to kind of give him some love before we started our, our uh, conversation about the film, because I think he is an absolute standout in, in, in this movie. I totally agree. And I think not only do I think he is a standout, mm. I think he is the archetype because he is the archetype mad scientist like yeah. that. The character of Henry Frankenstein in this movie yeah. is and this is what's weird. I think I said this. We were talking about Westerns. And I think I told this story sometime a while ago in the cinephiles is mm. that I remember watching my darling Clementine for the first time when I was mm. in college and I saw the Batwing door doors and the shot of, you know, red eye and things slid yeah. down the bar and all this stuff. And I'm like, Oh, this movie's totally full of cliches. And then I went, <laughs> Oh, this is where they're all from. <laughs> and I totally had the same feeling watching Frankenstein. Yeah. Like yeah, this yeah, is yeah. like this est- some of it seems like cliches Mm -hmm. and it is like, no, this is the origin of everything about monster movies. Not everything. Many of the classic things about monster movies were established in Frankenstein, you know? Yeah. 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 And just, I want to give one last thing, Colin Clive, his, his uh, grandfather's great grandfather, rather was Robert Clive, uh, who is the British first British governor of the Bengal presidency and had been widely credited for laying the foundation of the British East India company rule in bengal so that's that's the legacy this guy was coming from to be an actor which is so interesting so anyway just wanted to throw that out and we can say that legacy is very complicated depending on your perspective absolutely 100 a full british hero bringing the british law and justice around the world or an exploiter who stole a whole bunch of crap from some people it's totally up to you how you interpret that true Shall we enter the world of Frankenstein? Let's do it. I had no memory whatsoever that there's a dude (laughs) that comes out in front to tell you how scary this is going to be. Mr. Carl Lindley feels it would be a little unkind to present this picture without just a word of friendly warning. And from what I read, this was added post-production because, as I've said many times on this show, people think this stuff just gets created nowadays but religious groups all the way back then the 1930s 
we're having issues with these monster movies and this idea of bringing uh, something back to life. The, the novel of Frankenstein was something that religious groups had issues with because it was, in essence, a scientist wanting to play God. And that was something they were super sensitive about. So this warning was a way of answering those critics before the film started. Uh, and the actor that's doing it is Edward Van Sloan, who plays Dr. Waldman in this film. He had also just played Dr. Van Helsing in the Dracula movie, and he would go on to play a very similar part in the Mummy movie. And this became this guy's gig, you know. And what I read, which surprised me, was that this little speech was written by a very young John Huston. Yes. We are about to unfold the story of Frankenstein, a man of science who sought to create a man after his own image, without reckoning upon God. And I think that is to your point of cutting off religious objections, hopefully before they get there, which did not actually work for this film. <laughs> so if any of you feel that you do not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now is your chance to, uh, well, we've warned you. And he walks off screen. <laughs> And we go into titles, and this is, until the end of the film, the only score of the whole movie, which just shocks me that there's not a lot of music. And in the titles, we see that it says The Monster, and the name given there is question marks. They do not give Boris Karloff's name in the credits, which is actually what happened throughout the theatrical history way back to the 1820s of The Monster was not actually named in these plays. And then we are at a funeral. And man, you know, it's so funny that we just did Night of the Hunter, which owes so much to German expressionism. And this, we're seeing it right here too. I mean, just the way all of this is filmed is yeah. dark and brooding and filled with shadows and very expressive. Yeah. And you see, the other thing, it's funny. I don't know if you, I, I got the new 4K Blu-ray hmm. of yeah. this and I watched it with that. And the thing about 4K Blu-ray, it looks fantastic. And that painted wall in the background <laughs> really looks like a painted wall in the, a cool wall yeah it looks yeah, yeah. great but it looks like a wall in the background yeah yeah and th- then we see someone pop up watching this funeral and it is fritz who is played by dwight fry who also played renfield mm. in dracula wow. keeping all the same people together it was funny as soon as i heard the word fritz i was like wasn't well, it igor i mean this, yeah. this should be igor yeah. fritz is not in the book is a character introduced in all these plays so fritz was a regular character in the plays right. and that's where this name comes from and the finish up the funeral it's very somber the mourners all walk away and then and this wasn't in the script but they added a little more time of the guy filling the grave mm. and you know what i think is key to the guy filling the grave is the sound of the dirt hitting the coffin yeah yeah and they got it because they put a microphone inside the coffin. That's the sound we're hearing. And I think it's particularly for 31. I mean, sound only jazz singers, 27. Yeah. This is four years after the jazz sound is totally new. Yeah. And that feeling of hearing the sound hit the coffin, I think is pretty radical in 1931. Anyway, he finishes, you know, filling up the grave and up pops Henry. It's really weird to me, by the way, that they changed his name from Victor Frankenstein to Henry Frankenstein. (laughs) Victor is Frankenstein's a better name, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I I really wonder what the motivation for that was. Mm. But they pop up and they come out and he takes off his jacket and they start to dig up that grave. Yeah. We're getting right to some disturbing stuff. Yeah, right Um, off the bat. And it's weird because... 
Um, they do it really quickly. Like that, yeah. that grave, uh, grave barrier couldn't have been more than maybe, I don't know, a few seconds down the road and they yeah. already are in there, but you can see that already the way Colin Clive comes into this, uh, as Henry Frankenstein, you can see the, the, I don't know, the passion and the vigor and the desire of what he's doing here. And he isn't a cruel person to Fritz, but he certainly is a person who feels he's above Fritz. And you can see in the dynamic of how they're working together to get this, uh, to uh, unearth this body, which has just died. So there's also that kind of feeling of like, how can we, this is essentially the protagonist. How can we support the protagonist who is here grave robbing for the first few seconds of the movie? No, it's a violation. And I, Mm. and I would think, I mean, I think today it's a violation and I think in 1931, it's a violation. It's, It's a very, and he is, I won't say he's crazed, but he's, mm. he's in the direction of crazed. He's you crazy. know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so I think it's a really disturbing place to start your movie. And you say this is the protagonist, and I guess that he is. Yeah. But it doesn't always to be a good person, but he is the focus of the movie. I mean, it's so funny. I don't, I th- it's not really a, vi- a viable comparison, but like taxi driver, you're with a guy who's a crazy person who you really don't trust. And I don't trust Henry Frankenstein. Right. You know? Like, I don't, I'm worried about this whole situation. They, and the moment they, they, they pull that coffin up and, and it's so funny because for me, because they pull the coffin up sort of vertically in the, yeah. in the grave is I can sort of feel that body kind of bouncing around in there. You know what I mean? Like, that's how it feels to me. I'm very aware that there's a dead body in that coffin. Yeah. We have that close up shot of, of Henry saying, you know, he's, he's only sleeping. He's waiting to be alive again in a new way. You know, you see the obsession in his face. And they throw him on a cart and they're wheeling that away. And then we come up to a hanged man. Yeah. Um, and he's just like, he says, Fritz will climb up there and cut the rope. Fritz wants no part of it. Mm. Climbs up, cuts the rope with a knife. The body falls. He examines it and says, The neck's broken. The brain is useless. We must find another brain. One of the things I find interesting about this movie, which is also something that you see in Young Frankenstein, you know, 30 years later or 40 years later, is they're very vague about the time period. Because what we saw in the funeral and this hanged man at the gallows, mm. that could be mid-1800s. That, yeah. that could be 300 years ago. Yeah. And then when we go to the medical college, which is where we go now, it's clearly people are dressed in sort of clothes of the 30s. Yeah. But then there are no cars. There's no radios. There's no telephones. And the the townspeople and the world seems more 19th century. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, I, and that's all done consciously to go like this is in some European, middle European non-specific time and place. You know what I mean? Like a fairy tale kind of world. Yeah. Um, And we're in this medical college and there is a, a a cadaver there and Dr. Waldman is there and he is talking about these brains. And then he shows two brains. uh, One of which is a normal brain. And another is an Abbey normal brain. <laughs> I really can't get away from young Frankenstein. You can't. You can't. And, th- and this thing, the, the abnormal brain, this is added by this movie. It is not in the book. It's not in any of the plays. And what the decision was, and I actually think this is a, a was the wrong decision, okay. is that we wanted to make the monster more 
absolutely scary as a bad guy. And this was part of their way to do that is that the brain they used is Abby normal. <laughs> right. And this is, of course, what, the 1930s? So this idea of exploring the human brain, of course, we've had Freud and other philosophers and psychologists and whatever, or early psychology, having this discussion about the effect on the brain, like how one brain is different from the other brain. The ones that commits crime, it must have some kind of issue where, you know, this rudimentary trying to explain why some people commit crime and why some people don't. And even nowadays, Steve, we have the investigation of CTE on the brain and its effect on the brain versus a, a, a player or a person who doesn't have CTE on the brain and how that affects it. So the study of brain science, even back then in the 1930s, is something that we are still doing today in exploring how the brain functions and what in the brain can be affected to affect behavior or affect instinct in certain moments. It's funny. I hadn't thought about what you just said, but like there's things, because obviously there's connections there with like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and stuff right. like that yeah. of like, man, we know a shit ton more about the brain than we did then. And you could do a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde or an abnormal brain or changing brain stories today with a lot of science that could be real scary. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, um, but he, the class ends and everyone walks out, leaving behind a couple of brains that you just, you know, who cares? What could happen? Well, what could happen is Fritz, who climbs in through the window, and it's so funny because, again, I can't not picture young Frankenstein and Igor, and the, he's got that little tiny cane Yeah, uh, yeah. Fritz does, and he goes down to get one of the jars. Obviously, he's going to grab the normal brain. For some reason, he takes the lid off and leaves the lid on the desk. I'm like, you know, if I was carrying a brain around, I'd keep the lid. And then he gets startled, drops the brain, and of course, picks up the abnormal brain and heads out with it. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Hello, Cinephiles fans. You know, we all kind of walk around with these stressors, big, small, medium in our lives that are triggered sometimes by frustrations at work or frustrations at our job or just frustrations overall about our life. Because sometimes you know this, if you compare, you despair and you just want to live a life that's a little bit more clean and accepting of yourself and a little more open to receiving positive messages for yourself so you can have that life that you want to live and have that great work-life balance. And it's not always easy. And for me, for years and years, I thought all of this stress, all of this hardship, I had to just carry on my own, that this is what it meant to be a man. And it was finally getting therapy where I realized like, oh, I don't have to carry that stuff. There's a place where I can unburden myself and actually get advice and guidance about how to deal with it better in the future. Yeah, Steve, you and I have spoken very proudly about how therapy has helped both of, both of us deal with our stressors in our lives. And if any of you are listening to us who are thinking of starting therapy, well, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and it's suited to your schedule. All you have to do is to fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge if things aren't working out, which I think is a great benefit. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Cinephiles today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S. And we cut to Elizabeth, who, as you said, is played by Mae Clark. Yeah. I didn't realize that uh, her movie right before this is Public Enemy where James Cagney stuffs a grapefruit in her face. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yes, yes, yes. There's a knock on the door, and there is, we have taken the name Hen Victor 
away from Frankenstein and for some reason given it to Victor Morris, my great, great uncle, I suppose, um, who's played by John Bowles. And John Bowles is like, he'd been acting all through silent films. He acted with Gloria Swanson. He's just, you know, a regular working actor. He was, uh, he was, I think, Shirley Temple's dad and Curly Top, you know, like he's a guy who's been around a lot in this era. Right. And he comes in and Elizabeth is worried about Henry because she just got a letter from him that sounds fairly crazed. You must have faith in me, Elizabeth. Wait. My work must come first, even before you. And as I'm like, okay, that's not too crazy. <laughs> and then she just reads the next line. At night, the winds howl in the mountains. There's no one here. Prying eyes can't peer into my secret. And I'm like, all right, this letter's getting a little crazier. I am living in an abandoned old watchtower close to the town of Goldstadt. Only my assistant is here to help me with my experiments. I gotta say, I find uh, May Clark's performance very flat. Wow, really? Yeah. Okay. You didn't strike you that way? No, I, I think the script is not great yeah. for the lines they give her to say. And look, the, no one was coming to see this film, they imagined, for May Clark, right? right? But I think she does the best she can with the material she's been given. And there are weird pauses that I don't know if those are direction or if, the, if this is a theater actress on screen, you know, acting for a um, newer uh, film director who maybe doesn't understand how you can't be having these pauses in film that just kind of live there in between lines. So, um, yeah, maybe not the greatest performance, but I certainly didn't find her uh, to be. We're going to get to the the dad. He is the worst in all of this. But yeah, uh, I thought in a different fine. movie. I think yeah, he is completely a different movie. I I think she's I think she's fine for what she's doing. But I can understand if, you know, it doesn't really work for a lot of people. Well, you know what I think is weird is that or, or, or need, we need to keep in mind hmm. is that the studios are cranking out like, you know, 80 movies a year, like yeah, the yeah, amount yeah, of yeah. movies they were putting out. And nobody nobody is going this is a prestige picture. You right. know what I mean? Right. They're going, this is a monster movie. Right. And so it's like the, they're want to make it thrilling. And it's, there's, it's not supposed to have the most amazing acting. It's only, it's only because it has become a classic that I'm looking at it in a more careful way. Yeah. Um, but what we found out is basically that there's some experiments that he is obsessed with and he is kind of disconnected and very uh, acting a bit crazed. And she is worried about him. Yeah. She asked Victor if he's seen him, and he says, About three weeks ago, I met him walking alone in the woods. He spoke to me of his work, too. I asked him if I might visit his laboratory. He just glared at me and said he'd let no one go there. His manner was very strange. Victor, what are you doing wandering and walking alone in the woods? That's what I want to know. Is that something people did in that place? I don't know. I mean, where else are you going to walk? If you had to walk from Streets. here to there? Clearly, it's a very heavy street. Uh, a lot of people around. I don't know. I think I there's like a lot of woods. Around. I'm, I'm not a big fan of walking in the woods, I guess. <laughs> I, I'm aware. Well, and looking at this world where there's like monsters running around, yeah. probably a bad idea. And crazy ass castles on mountaintops? No, thanks. No, thanks. So Victor says he's going to talk to his old, Dr. Waldman, who's Henry's old professor, and she's very grateful. Well, Victor, your idea. Do you know I'd go to the ends of the earth for you? I shouldn't like that. I'm far too fond of you. I wish you were. So what is this, what is going on here? Basically, Victor is in the friend zone and wants to get out of the friend zone, but she's too in love with Henry because Henry's actually an interesting 
dude with things going on. And as you said, Victor's uh, like John Bowles, pretty much a standard actor doing his job in all these roles. And that's why you cast someone like this in a role like this. He's not going to take the attention away from Henry Frankenstein, but he'll be a kind of lovelorn guy to be there for Elizabeth. And of course, later Henry tells him, I'm counting on you to take care of her. So clearly well, a very reliable guy versus Henry. Yeah. It's, it's, it's funny because this is, I think this is like a artifact of script changes mm. that they didn't know were going to happen, which is that in the original version, Henry dies. Both, oh, wow. Both the yes, creature but- and Henry dies. So when he says, hey, I want you to take care of her, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, that's where the movie is supposed to end up. It's supposed yeah. to end up with Victor and Elizabeth together, not yeah. Henry and Elizabeth. And so this establishment of his attraction to her is but. Spo- in the original version of the movie is supposed to end up with them together. Right. Makes and sense. here it just feels really like, dude, I mean, this guy's engaged to your friend. Like yeah. what's up, man. Yeah. She's like, she's in a um, unstable position right now, worried about this dude that she loves and you're going to try to weasel in there. Come on. Yeah. And uh, so he's going to head off to see Dr. Waldman and the last minute she goes, no, I'm going with you. And we end up with Dr. Waldman and a great, all the, all the sets are great. Yeah. Oh yeah. hundred percent. I think that is one of the most important things of this film is it just looks so great. In well, and I think that's one of the gifts of James Whale, right? He was a scenic designer on yeah. stage. So he was like, I, I know exactly what I want to convey in the frame and what I want these things to look like. Well, you know, his research is in the field of chemical galvanism and electrobiology. We're far in advance of our theories here at the university. In fact, they had reached a most advanced stage. They were becoming dangerous. And what we hear is that he wanted a lot more bodies than they could provide him for his crazy experiments. Oh, the bodies of animals. Well, what are the lives of a few rabbits and dogs? Which, by the way, today, I don't think that line would go over as well as it goes no. then. Victor, come on. But, the, but Dr. Waldman leans in and says, You do not quite get what I mean. Herr Frankenstein was interested only in human life. First to destroy it, then recreate it. There you have his mad dream. He's putting on an accent. Yeah. He's from Minnesota. <laughs> you know, so, but so, but I like the accent. It's not overdone. You know, it's kind of just hanging on the edges as he's talking about this. So I, I really appreciated that. But, but this is also what's, what I actually think works in this weird way. And it just occurred to me that they do the same thing in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory with mm. Gene Wilder, which is some people have British accents. Oh, yeah. People have German accents. Some people have American accents. And we just kind of don't care. And it's part of what puts this movie in sort of its own place, you know. So basically where the scene ends is that they convince Dr. Waldman that we need to go see him. And again, Elizabeth is like, and I'm going with you. Yeah. Cut to the exterior shot of this tower with a crazy machine on the roof and Fritz is up there and we're going to head into the real Frankenstein stuff, which is into the lab. Yeah. And I love the use of vertical space, which you don't always see in movie sets like this. Movie sets are normally fairly horizontal because the sets are horizontal and they like went, no, this is a tower and we can look way down in the lab up to the rooftop where Fritz is and they're calling back and forth as he's setting up the connections. Yeah. And we're in this room of just crazy, crazy technology. There's sparky things and electric things and things that light up and things that flash. And all of this is built from a, by a guy named Kenneth Strickfadden. Hmm. who just was obsessed with this stuff. 
Universal paid him $10,000 to rent all this equipment. Wow. Which is a lot of money back then. Yeah. And what we found out years ago when we did Young Frankenstein is when Mel Brooks is going, well, we need to get a bunch of equipment that looks like the stuff from the original Frankenstein. Kenneth Stickfadden was still alive and had all this junk in his garage. And so the stuff that is in Young Frankenstein is the same stuff that's in this set in 1931. That's awesome. That yeah. is awesome. And, and by the way, according to Strickfadden, one of those Tesla coils is a Tesla coil actually built by Nikola Tesla. Nikola wow. Tesla, like one of the originals. Isn't that cool? That is cool. Yeah. And Frankenstein puts on a pair of headphones and he's listening to the storm outside and says, The storm will be magnificent. All the electrical secrets of heaven. And this time we're ready. Hey, Fritz. Ready. And Fritz is freaked out because what he sees is this hand coming out from underneath the bl- the the sheet where this body has been assembled. There's nothing to fear. Nope. No blood, no decay. Just a few stitches. And look. And then he goes over and reveals part of the head. I yeah. will say one of the most iconic heads in film history, but the face is still wrapped up because we want to withhold the first time you're going to see the face of the creature. Think of it. The brain of a dead man waiting to live again in a body I made with my own hands. With my own hands. You're right. Colin Clive is great. I mean, he's so good. He's Because his investment is so believable that as you're watching the movie, you're invested. And again, it isn't a caricature. It feels like this guy could be obsessed with this, this obsession. And I and I love that um, in his portrayal. You know? Well, and I think what, what's weird about it is this becomes a caricature, is that people are going to imitate oh, yes, right. this performance yeah. as the quote-unquote mad scientist in Bugs Bunny and every single place you see a mad scientist. Right. They owe something to Colin Clive, including all the way down to like Despicable Me, like owes something of the mad scientist, I think, all the way back to Colin Clive. Yeah. So we're waiting for the storm to get strong enough. And then we hear a knocking at the door. And Fritz goes down and he said, you know, just send him away. And I don't know about you, but I think about Macbeth and the sort of comic relief as he's going down to the knocking at the door. Yeah. Um, and Fritz goes down this huge stairway. Again, all of these sets are beautiful. The use of light and shadows and it all looks really cool. And I like, he opens up that little grate in the doorway, the little window. It goes, who's there? And of course it's Dr. Waldman and Elizabeth and Victor. And he just goes, go away. Get to him now. (laughs) Pouring, pouring rain outside. And they start calling out. And we have this amazing shot from the outside, looking up at this window of Frankenstein, looking down kind of out of focus. Yeah. And finally realizes that it's his fiance. And even then, he still tries to get rid of them. What do you want? Open the door. Let us in. You must leave me alone. Let me at least give a shelter. And it's Elizabeth who's the one that convinces him. I, yeah. I don't think Waldman and Victor would have convinced him to open the door. It's the fact that Elizabeth is there with him. So Elizabeth insisting to go along actually works in the script because of this moment. There's no way they're in the castle without Elizabeth being there. Uh, totally. I don't think you would have opened the door. Yeah. You know, what's interesting, I think, is that from the beginning where we're digging up bodies is that the basic decision is that Frankenstein has said, what I'm doing is so important yeah. that the rules no longer apply to me. 
Right. So the the sacredness of a body that's buried in a church cemetery, it doesn't matter. I can do with that body what I want. And the, and the the rules of society, people have come to my house in the storm mm-hmm. and I'm just going to send them back out into the storm doesn't apply to him either. The only as you say, yeah. the only connection that he's respecting at all is Elizabeth. Yeah, and I and I think that's why it's an interesting film to watch through the commentary of someone who is obsessed with this and convinces them. And we've seen this through the history, right? People again obsessed with accomplishing something uh, to the, because in their minds, they've convinced themselves that breaking all the social norms, violating all these social rules are worth it because what I'm going to create or what I'm going to bring into the universe will be of benefit to everybody, even though it is my ego that's driving me more than anything else to make this happen. I've fooled myself that violating all these things are okay because it it'll be the means at the ends justifying the means you know it's so funny because this is the conversation we had just recently on the nation about sam bankman free yeah. and whether or not and i i see him more as what you just described you see him less in that way but the yeah. but the basic idea of my my ego whatever i think is so important yes that i can violate whatever rules are necessary in order to achieve that goal that's you know, that's the bad scientist. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and we have this moment where he's basically trying to keep them away from his experiment. And it's, I just want to point out, like, the lines here are full cliche lines that if a student of mine wrote these lines, I would tell them they can't have them in the movie. But this is where the cliche comes from, you know, because he says, You're crazy. Crazy, am I? We'll see whether I'm crazy or not in this crazed way, <laughs> but he does invite them upstairs to the lab and they all come in and he locks them all in. Yeah. Forgive me, but I'm forced to take unusual precautions. Sit down, please. And they don't sit. And then he very forcefully says, sit down. And at that moment, Dr. Waldman has gone over and is starting to examine the body, and Fritz yells at Dr. Waldman. I learned a great deal from you at the university about the violet ray, the ultraviolet ray, which you said was the highest color in the spectrum. You were wrong. Here in this machinery, I have gone beyond that. I have discovered the great ray that first brought life into the world. Which scientifically, I have no idea what any of that means. But but the point is, he's figured some shit out. Yeah. At first, I experimented only with dead animals. And then a human heart, which I kept beating for three weeks. I gotta say, keeping a heart beating for three weeks, that's that's a hell of an accomplishment. Yeah, I would agree. And then this is where we hear, and this is is where the religious objections to this movie begin, Mm. is they start talking about this body and he says i'm going to turn that ray on that body and endow it with life and you really believe that you can bring life to the dead that body is not dead it has never lived i created it i made it with my own hands from the bodies i took from graves from the gallows anywhere so he is putting himself in the place of god Mm-hmm. which even as an atheist seems like a bad idea to me. <laughs> and I like this line. He says, Quite a good scene, isn't it? One man crazy, three very sane spectators. 
poor Fritz left out of the conversation. <laughs> That's a great point. <laughs> Look, Fritz is a dick. <laughs> to be real clear, Fritz is not a good Fritz. Fritz is the worst is more responsible, I think, than anybody else for what happens in this movie. Wow. Listen, you're going after the simple one. I, I don't know. I, I think it's more his just simpleness, stupidity, so to speak. But that's fair. But maybe, maybe. Well, we, what, what I should say, look, Frankenstein is responsible. Well, look, and Frankenstein is the one who hired Fritz. So really, the question is the boss. Right. Why did you hire this guy? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and really, yes. You, well, we'll get to it. We'll get to we'll get to some of the mistakes that are made. <laughs> there are a lot of go. mistakes Henry makes here. Yeah, but the storm has reached the right moment, and so they start lifting up this table. Which, by the way, Boris Karloff was really lying on as mm-hmm. they lifted this thing up, and which I love. I love the whole concept of what. And all of this is the movie. This isn't from the plays. This isn't from the books. Yeah. This is this is all designed for the movie. I love the way it works. They lift the table all the way up to this skylight up into this storm where lights and sparks and what they had was huge arc lights flashing. Those are the super powerful lights. And then they also had, you know, sparks and, you know, all these things going off up there to make it super chaotic. And poor Boris Karloff is lying on a rickety table. That's kind of swaying around near all these crazy lights. He sounds like it was kind of scary. (laughs) Um, And then they lower them back down and, We look at the body, we look at that hand that is hanging off the edge of the table, and the hand moves. Yeah. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. And they kind of grab him because he's full on going to crazy town. Yeah. In the name of God, I know what it feels like to be God. And that was, by the way, that line was edited out, or that part of the scene was edited out for a long time and only went back in after they remastered the film. Because, again, the religious groups, you know, for him to say, now I know what it feels like to be God, that was so heretic back then. So um, a lot of people didn't get a chance to see that for a while before they put it back in. I'm going to say the same thing I said during night when we did Night of the Hunter, which is it's so strange to me is like, the fact that the crazy person who's really the villain of the piece in a lot of ways has yeah. these delusions isn't an attack on a religion from my perspective. It's an attack on the person who is attacking the religion. Oh, you course. know what I mean? Well, well, we're sane thinking individuals, right? People yeah. who are people who are obsessed with religion, and I may walk into some trouble here yet again on the show, but people who are obsessed with religion, in my opinion, aren't thinking rationally, aren't thinking normal and balanced. They're thinking way too much skewed on another side. And so everything is seen through that prism. Uh, and unfortunately, they see it as something negative to even ha- mention it or to even have anyone say it, whether they're a villain or a hero in the piece. You know, They just want it silent. We don't yeah, want... They want yeah. a silent. Exactly, exactly. I, I always think that pretending that you don't have enemies or, or ignoring criticisms actually just makes you look worse. 100% agreed. Yeah. yeah. And that's what we saw in Night of the Hunter. If they if just said, that, right. like, they saw the uh, Robert Mitchum character as an attack on religion, mm-hmm. as opposed to, no, this is a horrible person who has, you know, who's yeah. using religion. Anyway. Religion. Yeah. yeah. And then as they grab the crazed Henry Frankenstein, we fade out. And what I find so interesting and what this movie does so well yeah. is we're withholding the monster. We could have shown you the monster right there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We know that he's alive, but we don't want you to see him yet. And and this is one of I think this is the gamble of the movie that pays off 
because when we get to the monster, everything changes. Yep. To me. But now we're going to cut to your favorite uh, character, Baron von Frankenstein. Oh, my God. Who's Frederick Carr. This guy, by the way, just it's like consistent acting his whole life. 50, 60 years of just never stops working. Theater, uh, movies, everything. Someone explain to me why or how. But yeah, okay. I can totally see him. You, you've, I'm sure you've been to like regional theater where there's the guy who's sure. acted at that regional theater forever and everyone in the audience loves him and oh, it's him again. I could totally see him being that guy. I just think of Soap Dish. I'm not going back to dinner theater because you <laughs> hacking up in the middle of Willie Loman's speech. So uh, yeah, he's in a total, he's in his totally own movie. Yeah, he really is. And I understood why they were doing this, just a little bit of levity in this mm-hmm. kind of serious thing. But also, but, and also what's interesting watching now in 2023, and I don't know if people were talking about it back then when they were looking at the film, but it's also the idea of a son who is clearly not in, in the same mentality as his father. And as we see later on when his father is brought up, Henry is very clear that his father never believed in anybody. So this is almost what drives Henry's obsession within himself to prove himself is he had an indifferent father who never supported or trusted or believed in what he was trying to do as a scientist or what was driving him as a scientist to discover the origin of life. And so when we see this comical dad here acting the fool and is more obsessed about the wedding and is denigrating all the things his son does and is even flat out accusing uh, his son of cheating on his beautiful uh, wife-to-be, his fiance, it just turns him into a a bit of a, a buffoonish character um, and I don't see the logic, like I understand why, but I don't see the logic in the end with the performance of why you'd have that. It would have been much more powerful to have a stronger, indifferent, almost violent father uh, at this situation instead of a buffoonish oaf. I, I, I think the scenes are really weird. I don't, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I don't find them bad. Like, it's not that I find them not enjoyable, but yeah. it's a weird departure. And I'm going to make the the most bizarre comparison but this is what popped in my mind thinking about the character of Baron von Frankenstein is he kind of reminds me of James Earl Jones as the King of Wakanda in the sense that he just kind of enjoys being Baron von Frankenstein. And that's all you need to be like, why is my son going off and wanting to do these other things? Why doesn't he just enjoy the wipers and just, you know, have fun being Baron von Frankenstein and get married and have kids and do all the it's you've got a great deal here what's the deal what's the problem wipers yeah exactly yeah that's a good question why does he go missing around an old ruined windmill when he has a decent house a bath good food and drink and a darn pretty girl to come back to (laughs) will you tell me that he's a perfect example of a uh privileged person who is unaware of his privilege yeah. and unaware that he's being a jerk to other people like when the burgermaster comes in and the burgermeister is just like well we need when are we gonna have the wedding who's named vogel by the way yeah i love that <laughs> yeah so we got morris and vogel in this movie <laughs> we need a roca and a mcclung and then we'd really have something going on. set yeah exactly yeah um and but uh Burgermeister comes in. This is Lionel Belmar, by the way. Mm. Again, tons and tons. This is the studio age. So he's yeah. in Oliver Twist and King and Kings and Mutiny on the Bounty and on and on. You know, hundreds of movies this guy's been in. And this has to be who they based the Burgermeister on in The Year Without Santa Claus. Burgermeister Meisterburger? Yeah, the Meisterburger. I mean, it has to be him. Right? Yeah. It is so absolutely uh, an homage to him. 
and the Baron is being totally rude to him. Um, and, so we, as the, and it sounds like the town, what it sounds like to me is the town does not get to party that much. No. And they only get to party when the Baron has a party. And everybody's like, let's celebrate, you know, this wedding. And and and, I, and even like him kicking him out. Good day, Herr Vogel. Good day, Herr Baron. And good riddance to you. And he's a dick. It reminded me, their their good day to each other at the end. I wonder in the most recent film, Spirited, oh yeah, with, with Will Ferrell and Ryan Reynolds, they have that song where they say right. "Good day to you," which is like saying "f you" to somebody. And I wonder if that's a play on this exchange between these two guys because he says to the burger, "Good day, Burgermeister," and he's offended. The Burgermeister goes, "Good day, Baron von Frank," and then walks out. So. It's a bit of an fu, so I wonder if that's what inspired the song because that is a standout from that that film. Well, the other thing that's weird that's going on in the scene is he continually, in front of his son's fiance, yeah, says the only explanation is there's another woman. There's another gotta be another woman. Yeah, of course. He doesn't have a lot of. uh, He doesn't read the room well. (laughs) (laughs) Well, He doesn't have to. He owns the fucking room, I guess. Yeah. Then we're back at the tower with Henry and Doctor Waldman, and. Waldman is needless to say freaking out about what's going on here. Mm. That this creature that's been brought back to life. This creature of yours should be kept under guard. Mark my words, he will prove dangerous. And this speech, which I believe was not in the play and not in the original script, and mm. people speculate this speech was maybe written by James Whale. And I think it's key to the movie. Yeah. Have you never wanted to do anything that was dangerous? Where should we be if nobody tried to find out what lies beyond? You never wanted to look beyond the clouds and the stars, or to know what causes the trees to bud, and what changes a darkness into light. But if you talk like that, people call you crazy. Well, if I could discover just one of these things, what eternity is, for example, I wouldn't care if they did think I was crazy. I love, I agree with you, Steve. I love this speech. And we should say the writers, screenplay writers at least, are Garrett Fort and Francis Edward Farrago. Those are the credited screenwriters. And of course, it's adapted uh, from the play, and as Steve mentioned very well earlier in the novel. But like this speech, I agree with you. This is where, you know, people say, oh, I don't want to go back and watch old films or black and white films. This speech is so astute and so interesting and very much still something that people have inside of themselves this idea of well if i don't try if i don't take a chance if i don't go past the limits of the boundaries how do i know what's possible how do we know as a as a species what we can do what we can accomplish what we can um bring about through our intelligence and our drive and our abilities and that's what essentially he's saying is like yeah you don't have the vision i have but i'm driven to do this and the great people of life are driven to do things and have to ignore people who cannot see the things that they see and see the world that they the way that they do in order to accomplish the things they accomplish. So there's a lot of power in this speech that I think does a great job of humanizing Henry Frankenstein and making him a much more interesting um, three-dimensional character to watch in a film that is kind of full of one-dimensional characters. This is the risk is our business speech from Star Trek. Yeah, great point. You know, yeah. like that, that's, and th- and this is the thing, yeah. and this is the the distance between the risk is our business on Star Trek, where Kirk takes all sorts of crazy risks and ends up, that's what saves the day. Yeah. 
and Frankenstein, where he takes all sorts of crazy risks and he goes too far. Mm. It's the same story. It's just luck. I mean, like we could say that maybe Kirk planned ahead a little bit better than Frankenstein <laughs> did, but still he's saying the same thing. It's like, how are we going to find out if we don't try stuff? Your success has intoxicated you. Wake up and look facts in the face. Here we have a fiend whose brain, whose brain must be given time to develop. It's a perfectly good brain, Doctor. Well, you ought to know. It came from your own laboratory. Because apparently Fritz did not tell Frankenstein that he grabbed the Abbey normal brain. Because he's like, no, this is a good brain. He's like, no, that was the criminal brain. <laughs> Abbey normal? <laughs> and then this goes to, again, the the hubris and the ego. Because he, because he s- stakes his reputation on it's a normal brain. Then the moment that he hears that it's the criminal brain, he goes, oh, it doesn't matter. Right. That's where the obsession is is overriding the intelligence of the man. Only evil can come of it. Your health will be ruined if you persist in this madness. Anytime you have to say what Frankenstein is going to have to say, you should really question yourself because he says, <laughs> I'm astonishingly sane, doctor. John, if I ever say that to you, it's like, dude, if you go, dude, you're crazy. And I go, John, I am astonishingly sane. Look, I think we've all been in fights where people say to us, you're out of your mind. You, I'm perfectly calm. I'm perfectly, <laughs> just like, Do you want me to speak like this? Is this how you're going to understand me? And you're like, nope. That's the moment when you've gone over the edge. You don't yeah. know it because in your moment you feel like, yeah. no, I feel perfectly calm. I know exactly what I'm saying. But you, you know, on the outside, people are watching you go insane. So, yeah. And, and Waldman continues to plead with him. It brings up Elizabeth and your father. And he goes, Elizabeth believes in me. My father never believes in anyone. Yeah. See, and I think that's such, again, though, this is a deceptively deeper film than people give it credit for. Yes, you see the monster and all that, but there is a commentary here about a young man trying to find his way and prove himself and make his own mark in the world. I imagine his father uh, does not come necessarily from wealth. I imagine his father built this wealth, created this wealth. And yes, he's a fudgety old man now, but certainly when he was younger, he strikes me as one of these people that like violated all kinds of rules and laws and ethics in order to achieve his wealth. And so he's perplexed why his son can't just enjoy the fruits of his labors, but he doesn't understand that he's created a son because genetically they are connected. He's perhaps created a son that has taken on his own instinctual impulses to make his own way in the world. So when he says this about his father, and it seems like a throwaway line, but I think it's it carries weight. There's a, a real understanding of Henry being driven by these outside factors because people have always saw saw him as different or weird or not normal, um, and his father has never believed in him. So there's so much that you can sense from how he's delivering these lines, and that again, so much credit to Colin Clive for imbuing these lines with much more dimension than you might think initially. So while I interpret the father's backstory is very different from yours, I, for me, this is, this is Baron von Frankenstein. His father was Baron von Frankenstein. His grandfather was Baron von Frankenstein. This is, this is generations of a, of a, of wealth. Well, and because he talks about his grandmother who put away this wine, you know, and these jewels that have been, I think it's, it's, this is the idle uh, upper class, you know, this is the, the gentry. And yeah. that's not how Frankenstein identifies himself. He doesn't want to sit around and be, you know, he wants to be someone who changes the world. Hey, and maybe, as I mentioned earlier at the beginning, maybe this is Colin Clive bringing some of his real world thing. Sure. Coming from a history of military people that goes all the way back to the guy who started the stuff with India there as a Briton. 
um, him saying something in a way like, hey, never believed in me. They always saw me in a certain way, blah, blah, blah. I don't know. But certainly you can make parallel connections to his real life as he's gone in a different direction than the ancestors before him. I hadn't thought about that at all, but it totally makes sense. I mean, he's a guy who wasn't able to follow in the footsteps of the military life and probably does feel disrespected by yeah. the world, you know, and his father's family. He's like, you became an actor. Right. You know? Especially military people. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And it makes a lot of sense why James Whale cast him. Mm. And then he starts talking about the creature. I've got to experiment further. He's only a few days old, remember. So far, he's been kept in complete darkness. Wait till I bring him into the light. So we're about to meet the creature. But before we get there, I just, this line just shows how little fucking plan Frankenstein had after the point that he brought this creature to life. He just didn't, I don't know if you've heard, there's some really crazy experiments, particularly psychological experiments in the 50s and 60s, in addition to like dosing people with LSD and all those things. But there's psychological experiments where a guy basically isolated his own children from human interaction to see what happened to them. And of course, it fucked them all up. There's one where they, they raised these monkeys where... The monkeys didn't interact with their mother. They just interacted with like a wire frame that looked like a monkey. And those monkeys became violent and horrible without any interact. There was one where there's like, they they put the uh, like some milk with a mo- wire frame, or then they had a pillow, like a stuffed animal that looked like a monkey. And the monkeys would go and drink the milk from the wild frame, but then snuggle with the stuffed animal just to get any kind of affection at all. And they all became really violent and messed up because they didn't have the affection of a mother right. and i just and that's you know 20 years after this movie comes out but it just i'm thinking about so you brought this guy back to life and then you just stuck him in a dark room yeah, yeah. like w- you know that's gonna that's think of how because this next moment which is we hear footsteps for a long time yeah. builds a lot of anticipation here he comes let's turn out the light the footsteps are getting closer and closer and then the door opens and then the creature steps into the room backwards and then slowly turns around. And I got to say, I think this moment is totally fucking amazing. Yeah. When we see that face. You cannot earn this moment unless every, unless most of everything in the film is working so that, uh, so that when this moment happens, it's like this boom moment for you as a viewer. Also, you can ignore the logic of why he's walking backwards into a room, you know? So it makes sense to have him do the turn. I do think James Whale messes up by doing two close-ups. One close-up would have been enough, him turning into the face, maybe holding the camera there for a while. But I guess they wanted to really kind of drive home the horror of of Boris Karloff as Frankenstein. Frankenstein Monster. I I see why you say that, but Mm. it it did work on me. And part Mm. of it is that expression and Karloff's performance. And so let's talk about Boris Karloff. Yeah. So Lugosi's out uh, because he doesn't want to do this thing. And we're looking around for somebody. And it was a friend of James Whale that recommends Boris Karloff, Mm. who he sees at like the Universal Commissary. And kind of looks at a guy, likes his face, and then they sit down and eat together. Yeah. And he just basically says, I just was fascinated by looking at this person. And Karloff, he's a guy I've been acting way into, into the silent movie since like 1919. Yeah. Acted in all sorts of stuff. 
always a bit player right in the last couple of years when talkies started he started to have a little bit of success he's in a couple of howard hawks movies mm. by the way his actual name is not boris karloff it's william henry pratt um and uh Perfectly fine film name, yeah. yeah and and it was really james whale looking at his face that got him seen who this creature could be. And the mm. first sketches come from James Whale in terms of drawing what the face looked like, because as you said, he was a designer. Yeah. And then that went to uh, Jack Pierce. Jack Pierce is the head makeup artist at Universal Studios. And he had worked with, but never been in charge of, Lon Chaney Sr. Mm. for Hunchback and Phantom of the Opera, where the makeup is astounding, all of which was done by Lon Chaney. And after Lon Chaney died, it, be, it really fell to Jack Pierce and it was, they worked for weeks doing the makeup on Boris Karloff and checking it with James Whale and making adjustments and checking it again and making adjustments until they finally came up with this look, which, I mean, are there more iconic makeup looks in the history of film? That's a great point. No, no. Um, the whole design, the, the hair, the bolts, all of it had such a uh, profound effect and it still does, as you said, Steve, just now how it still worked on you when you saw it. And I agree. It worked on me too. When I saw it the first, uh, the first time watching it again, it's like, wow, this is, this works so well, you know, and his, well, and, and Karloff's performance, the eyes, the, just the kind of dead nature of the eyes with, a, you can tell there's just shades of a little bit of evil underneath. So all of that has to be conveyed uh, when you're walking into that scene. I think what Karloff does is amazing. And by the way, it was Karloff's idea because he's collaborating with a makeup artist too. Right. Is that originally his eyes were really open and Karloff's like, no, I think he should be like have sleepier eyes so that his lids are halfway down. That gives him a little bit of a, he's just coming into existence look. Yeah. Um, and, and and like the flat head, because that's where they put his brain into yeah. the skull and the fact that his, you know, the huge shoes, the, they put metal rods in his pants that made it awkward for him to, to walk. They have the sleeves are shorter, which makes his arms look unusually long. Mm. His hands are built up to look bigger. And everything, I, and this is why I go back to the Abbey normal brain, but like everything in this moment makes me sympathetic with him. Yes. You know? 100%. I, and that is, that's why the, the, I think it is my sympathy for Frankenstein, well, I, you and I have both done it multiple times now, is that that has become Frankenstein. Right. You know, whereas it's actually not named Frankenstein, it's the guy that made him. But we think of that, when you picture that thing, that's Frankenstein, yeah. is that it is the sympathy for that character that is what is makes this movie a great movie to me. And I'll tell you what else is fascinating is the first person they looked at after Lugosi was John Carradine. Oh, really? See, I didn't know that. Yeah, and you can see why, right? You look at John Carradine and like Stagecoach and other things, like he's got that totally all kind of hangdog expression. You could totally turn into a monster, but he felt he was too highly trained to play a role like that. <laughs> so Boris got it. And look, things happen for a reason sometimes, man. Uh, and they get him to sit down, which he understands. And then they turn this wheel to open the skylight. And the moment that the light descends onto the creature and he reaches his hands up to the light and walks forward, sort of bathed in the light, is yeah. amazing. This is the moment of the movie for me, watching it this time around. Yes, the It's Alive moment is great, but this is the moment. And for me, I read this in a number of ways. A, this is a guy that's been brought back to life, right? So what do people say when they die? A lot mm. of people say, I saw the light. The light 
brought me home. The light was where. So being yanked back, if you even believe in that kind of approach to things, to me, he's almost reaching to go back to the light because look what I have been uh, brought back into life to be. Look at this thing of myself stitched together. Is this even fully my body? What is this all about? I didn't ask to be born, right? This kind of thing or to be reborn, I guess. And so to me, it almost seems like he is reaching towards heaven, reaching towards God, reaching towards some light here to take him away from this situation. And as you said, Steve, since he was born, since he's been kept in the dark, seeing light for the first time, maybe in his mind, who is still kind of processing the fact that he's been brought to life, is him maybe going back to the light, going back to where he was before. And so it just, it was so profound to see his reaction uh, to that moment. And I thought it was a wonderful job of Boris Karloff to act that uh, scene the way he did in that moment as well. It's like classic silent movie acting. Mm-hmm. You know, he doesn't have words. It's just doing it all with gestures. And I feel the same way. It's, it's, there's a religious feeling about this moment. Yeah. You know, of him standing in the light. And while I interpret some of it a little differently, maybe, but emotionally it's the same, which is like to me, it's like, I, there's a world, like I'm alive. I want to understand yeah. my place in it. What is, what is happening to me? And, and it's like, you should look if you're Frankenstein at this creature in this moment and go, Oh, this is, he's experiencing something like there's something important here. And he just closes off that light. And he's just so sad. Like, Oh, I'm back in the dark. And you know, he, he's maybe even a little bit angry and you could see yeah. he does this gesture with his hands of like, no, I give me more. I need. Give, yeah, yeah. And he, they sit him back yeah. down and then we hear Fritz. Frankenstein, where is it? And Fritz comes in with the torch, which immediately freaks Fra- uh, the monster out. Ah! What, you fool? <laughs> uh, by the way, originally this was just them lighting cigarettes and having matches. Um, and they decided the torch was much more. And then Frankenstein says, get away with that torch. And Fritz doesn't leave. So I go like, well, A, it's a failure of the boss to get his underling to do what he said, like leave. Right. But then Fritz just keeps poking the, the creature with that torch. Yeah. And he's getting more and more freaked out until there were now he's panicking and we're in a fight and we knock him down and have to tie him up. Get him to the cellar. Shoot it. It's a monster. I think it's it's also interesting when you look at this, because I think this is one of the failures of the movie is that that is not laid out more concretely. Fritz's issue with the monster, right? Um, Is it because he's jealous? Because now the monster has become this living obsession of the doctor, even though he helped the monster come to life. Does he now feel jealous like a new child, like an old child or like a, how can I say like a, a sibling would feel to a new baby, right? Is, is this jealousy going on? Because, Fritz courts the anger of the monster consistently until his death, uh, which we're getting to here in a few minutes. So I just, I find that a perplexing part of the movie. And I wonder if there were other scenes here between them where you establish the kind of rivalry between them, so to speak, from Fritz's side, at least, uh, that would make sense why he was so angry at this thing. I, I, I wonder about all this too, because it, mm. it doesn't quite all fit together. And I really feel like, there were different because you know this is the studio system and that 
you know, the idea to make this movie only comes the same year that the movie comes out. Right. Because of Dracula. And so all of this is pretty rushed. And we have the one thing where that Frankenstein initially was supposed to die at the end of the film and Victor was supposed to end up with the girl and that's not how it went. Yeah. The other thing that I think occurs is they added this idea of the abnormal brain to make the monster scarier. But then I think in this scene that we've just discussed, yeah. the power of the monster isn't that he's scary, although he is. The power of the monster is that he's sympathetic, yeah. is that we really feel for him. And because he's not acting like the villain with the abnormal vein who's, who brain that's super dangerous, then Fritz's behavior gets weirder. You know what I mean? Right, right, yeah. You know, because Contrast. I'm like, why are you being so mean to this this sweet <laughs> creature who just wants to reach his hands out into the light, you know? Yeah. Um, but needless to say, it's going to get worse because we're down in the cellar and Fritz comes in and has a whip and starts whipping the monster. Is chained. The monster is chained at this is point. Is chained for no reason that we can see. And mm-hmm. then Frankenstein comes in and tries to get him away. But then he doesn't actually make sure that Fritz leaves and Fritz stays in there. And, you know, waves his torch and is continuing to torture the monster. Yeah. Fritz and Waldman just kind of go upstairs and leave yeah. down there, which is weird. And upstairs, they hear a scream and then more screams, realizes that it's Fritz, and they run downstairs, and Fritz is now hanging in the background. Mirroring, in a way, foreshadowing his desire to not cut down the hanged man. Yeah. He himself is hanged later in the movie, so yeah. I... I wonder, it's so odd that he doesn't want to go up and cut that dude down. So I wonder if that was a little bit of foreshadowing. I I hadn't thought about it, but I think it's a really good point. Um, And they barely get out, forcing the door closed on the creature. And at this point, the creature is just pounding and screaming at the door. Come, come, pull yourself together. What can we do? Kill it, as you would any savage animal. We must overpower him first. Get me a hypodermic needle. So Waldman is taking over. Yeah. It's murder. It's our only chance. In a few minutes, he'll be through that door. Come, quick. Which I actually think, based on the, the information that we have and how he's pounding on that door, that's probably true. You know what yes, I mean? 100%. Like, they're in a desperate situation now. But, but look at what's happening in this moment, right? The doctor is saying, we have to kill this thing that you've created. Because we can't control it. And it's a wild animal. We need to keep shoot it down, right? So this is science saying to a scientist saying to another scientist, representing science, we must kill this thing that we do not understand. Kill it and get it out of the way. It's an embarrassment to us. It's it, it reflects terribly on us for having done this and blah, blah, blah. And yes, Waldman wasn't participating in it, but certainly you would probably imagine. He was, um, how would I say this? He, he didn't have an issue with Frankenstein's obsession with this stuff until he started asking for too many bodies. So he might have motivated him even more or encouraged him in his pursuits until the, the, incur- until the pursuits got a little bit too great for them. So I wonder about this moment when it's the, the impulse is to kill it rather than to try to control it, understand it, speak to it, you know, whatever. And, and so it's just, it's a fascinating moment for me when I'm watching it. I, I totally agree. And it's so funny because emotionally where I am in this story in terms of all I've seen is this guy that yeah. wanted to reach to the light yeah. and didn't show any violence at all until he was being attacked and was scared and was tortured by Fritz. Right. And then he fought back, which seems reasonable. And so I'm very against Waldman wanting to kill it. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, 
as we mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, we have AI, which a bunch of the creators of AI have issued a statement saying this is an existential threat that could kill, destroy human world. Maybe we should slow down a bit. And we have the side and basically the world has said, nope, we're moving (laughs) forward full speed ahead. Sorry, guys. And so I, I'm a little more on the Waldman kill it side I think, <laughs> in that circumstance. Yeah. Um, but needless to say, uh, Frankenstein goes up. He gets a very strong hypodermic with some poison or stuff in it. Mm. And he it ends up that he has the, the plan is we're going to open up the door and, and the monster is going to go towards Frankenstein. And then I can uh, put the hypo in the back. But Frankenstein is holding on to the one thing that scares the monster more than anything else, which is the torch, yeah. which is surprising to me a strategy. And it is genuinely scary when they open that door. Right. And the creature comes out. The cre- But the creature is analyzing the situation. So already yep. it's, it's uh, advancing in terms of its ability to think. It doesn't just come walking out. It actually pauses looking to its left and right, wondering where the danger will come from, which side of the door yeah. uh, or the walls rather that the danger is going to come from and eventually he does get tricked uh, as they planned and gets the needle um and almost kills waldman and then in the midst of all of this chaos there is once again knocking at the door hmm. and here comes victor who comes in and says that elizabeth and your father are coming uh and he's and frankenstein's going you got to keep him out <laughs> We got a you know a, a monster we just created and we just knocked him out. Fritz is dead. Fritz is like dead. we got a lot of stuff going on now. They're here now. <laughs> um, and so they're going to hide the the monster. And outside again in his own film is Baron uh, is Baron von Frankenstein who's like banging on the door with his cane and like going, "Why the hell is he living in a place like this? What the heck is going on here?" And finally, uh, Waldman opens the door. I would advise you to take Henry away from here at once. What do you suppose I'm here for? Pleasure? What? Nah. They go upstairs to find Henry. They open the door of the lab, and there is Henry, sees Elizabeth, and immediately faints. Yeah. Because, you know, he almost was killed by the creature. He's been through a lot of stuff. And he's mumbling to himself as they carry him to the sofa. Poor Fritz. Oh, my fault. Henry, you can't do any more now. You must come home until you get well again. You'll soon feel better when you get out of here. And we fade to black. It's Dr. Waldman now alone with the creature. And at this point, I'm going, is the creature alive? Are they dead? Like, what's exactly happening? And we quickly see that his eyes are moving a little bit. And what we see in his notes, Waldman has written that he's kept the creature subdued by multiple injections, and he's about to form a dissection. Hmm. We see those eyes fluttering as Waldman brings over his instruments and his scalpels. And I think we can be feel pretty sure this ain't going to go well. <laughs> well, I'm confused about, he just said, kill it just a couple of minutes ago. And now he wants to dissect it. So is the science part of him taking over to want to dissect it? Or is this how he wants to kill this thing, which is very mafia style? Cut it. I, yeah, I think it's weird because either you inject him enough to kill him. Mm-hmm. He seems to be continually ejecting him enough to keep him down, but not kill him. Right. And so is he going to dissect him while the creature is still alive? I don't know. That's, yeah. I'm yeah, it's weird. It, yeah. It's weird. But as he moves forward, we see that big, giant Boris Karloff hand reach up from behind the doctor, grab him by the throat, and chokes him. <laughs> Which, again, I think from the creature's point of view, I don't think this is evil. You know? Oh, no. Well, he doesn't know what the hell's going on. He can't communicate. 
Right. And we're looking at it from 2023 eyes. So we're much more sympathetic and understand these kind of situations and, and what's been created here. So like you, you're not saying that you're, you're saying it's okay for all the killings that happen, but this is a simple creature that is still just kind of barely alive and figuring out what it can and can't do. And it's strength. Remember Henry just said a few minutes ago, he's got the strength of 10 men. So it is certainly reacting to what it sees as danger and trying to eradicate the danger from, de- from destroying it. You know, he's well, about what? to cut him open for God's sake. I mean, what's his life been? He's was held in the dark, dark for a few days, shown the light for like 30 seconds. Then a guy was th- throwing a torch at him, then got chained up, whipped, torched, poisoned. Yeah, right. Yeah. And now a guy's standing next to him who's about to cut him open. Like, yeah. I think his responses have been relatively rational, you know? Yeah. And then the creature gets up and he leaves the tower. Uh, and then we cut to a beautiful pastoral scene with Elizabeth kneeling next to Henry, who is recovering, and he is going, Like heaven being with you again. Heaven wasn't so far away all the time, you know. And this is when Henry talks about how his obsession, basically. Yeah. Those horrible days and nights. I couldn't think of anything else. Henry, you're not to think of those things anymore. And now he decides, let's get married as soon as possible. Yeah. And they kiss, so I guess everything's going going to be fine for them. It's a little while later, and Dad is opening up some cases of old jewelry and talking about the wedding. Thirty years ago, I placed this on your mother's head, Henry. Today you will make me very happy by doing the same for Elizabeth. (laughs) And I hope, I hope in 30 years' time, a youngster of yours will be carrying on the tradition. (laughs) And he leads a toast with all the servants and everyone. Here's a health to a son of the House of Frankenstein. A son to the House of Frankenstein. And there's a cut to Henry in this moment that is, he has a very unusual and contemplative expression on his face. And I wonder what you think the effect of hearing a son of the House of Frankenstein is having on Dr. Frankenstein at this moment. It's interesting because it almost feels, I don't I don't know if I think his face is necessarily one of pride. It, it, it seems to be one of, well, I always wanted to be accepted. And now that it sounds like they're accepting me because I'm not doing the things that I want to do, should I accept this kind of acceptance? So maybe I'm reading way too much into it, but that's what I see from his face. Do to, I really want this? Yeah. To me, what I see is the son of the House of Frankenstein is the creature he just left in the tower. Oh, interesting. That's his oh, son. Okay. You know, like I, that's, that's the moment that I, I, is the, is the conflict between the future I'm supposed to have with Elizabeth as the next Baron von Frankenstein and living this life. And the thing I was trying to do before, yeah, which is create life, by the way, the moment where, cause we're drinking some fancy wine that his grandmother put away. Right. And the moment where he goes, give the servants some champagne, this stuff is wasted on them. Yeah. We'll keep the good stuff. But he thinks he's being totally generous, which in, right. on some levels he is, he's giving his servants champagne. And now we go, there's a huge party outside. And this is, I think, James Whale is showing off the universal backlot and the costume department and all the later hosen and all the people just running around and partying because this is the whole city is going to party when the Frankensteins get married. Yeah. We see the monster moving through the woods and we cut to a man who is cutting wood next to a lake. And I heard one commentary track said that this was shot 
at Sherwood Lake in the Santa Monica Mountains, which got its name Sherwood Lake because that is where Douglas Fairbanks shot his silent film version of Robin Hood Mm -hmm. was at Sherwood Lake. And then someone else has said it was at Malibu Lake, which is a different lake in the same mountains. And I don't know which one it's really at, at, but that is that is what I found out. And he says to this little girl to stay there and play with her cat because he has to go check his traps. And she wants him to stay and play. And he says he's too busy and walks away. And she goes towards the water and out comes the creature. And this scene is an amazing scene. Yeah. And and what's great is you see her moment of fear of just like, this guy looks kind of weird. And then you feel her childlike overcoming of that. Who are you? I'm Maria. And reaching out to him and taking his hand. Will you play with me? And man, I love Boris Karloff. Mm. Is the 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 tentativeness, the shyness, the joy, the feeling of being welcome, the smiling, the the reacting to the touch of the little girl's hand, everything he does in this scene is yeah. lovely. Yeah. Um, and she pulls out one of these flowers and hands it to her, him, which he smells. I can make a boat. And she tosses a flower into the lake, which floats. And he has a flower and he tosses it into the lake, which floats. And he's smiling. And then again, it's perfect silent movie acting because he kind of looks around for another flower and then he doesn't see another flower and he looks at the girl and you could see his thought process of, I wish I had another thing that I could throw in the water because, you know, I remember, you know, when Jackson was two years old or three years old, picking up a rock and throwing it in the water, that was as fun as you could get. Right. Right. So he looks around for something else to throw in the water and he grabs the girl. No, you're hurting me. No. And he throws her into the lake. And she sinks. But by the way, this girl did not know how to swim. <laughs> oh, shit. And James Whale is trying to get her to stay underwater after. And she's just trying to stay afloat. And finally, she figures out how to stay underwater for, for, so they can get their shot after he throws her in. She sinks and disappears. And he knows he's done something wrong. Right. And he looks at his hands and he runs away. Yeah. And, and again, this is a brain that's been put in to a collection of body parts. So this idea of looking at his hands, is he blaming his hands? Did his hands have their own, like it's, it's an interesting moment there uh, when he's looking at it. Did, you know, what did I do? How could I do that? The logic of it all, you know, like I don't want to make the comparison, but maybe I should, but it's like, it's like a dog. Sometimes after the dog indulges itself and does the terrible thing, when the, the the owner comes home and looks at the dog and the dog the dog has that sheepish look on its face because it knows it's done wrong. It indulged its instinct to do something and then realize later it's done wrong. And when the owner confronts him, that's the look on their face. So, and I'm not saying he's a dog necessarily, but you could argue that he is, as you said, younger, men- mentally younger and doesn't understand this whole situation. And so the fear of what he's done takes him over as he runs through the woods looking at his hands. Do you think when he threw the girl into the lake mm-hmm. that he had any sense that what he was doing was wrong? No. I think he threw in the lake to see if she would float. That's you all. Agreed. Do you think he will ever throw another girl into a lake? No. Agreed. I think he's learned the lesson from that moment and unfortunately cost the life of this young girl. Yeah. I, this is why it wasn't, I believe, an innocent act. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, killing a girl is wrong. I think we could agree with of that. Of course, 100%. Killing a child is wrong. 
Yeah. yeah. The cinephiles is opposed to that. <laughs> but, opposed to any kind of killing. Yes. But but his actions were done innocently without right. any malice. There was no that's why again I go back to the abnormal brain of going like that's not what's happening. That's not what this movie is. This movie is this is an innocent brain who doesn't understand his power he doesn't understand mm. his place in the world mm. he doesn't understand how things work and that causes and he's put in shitty situations and that causes him to behave in, in ways that are violent yeah and again if you look at this from a symbolic point of view this is a criminal who is doing things because of how it's been raised and it brought back to life stuck in the dark devoid of love as you mentioned with the monkeys and all these other things devoid of love um, lashing out when it feels threatened because it has not been taught how to deal with these situations by its father, his father, which is in essence Henry. And so in these moments, it is having to learn or he is having to learn as things happen and his instincts and his brain does the things they're doing. So you could argue in a way he symbolizes that how we deal with criminals in our society, how understanding or sympathetic we are to criminals in our society? Do we factor in outside external influences on these criminals, like where they're born, where what they're, what messages they receive, what kind of love they got in life? There's all these things you can consider in these moments when you're seeing what um, Frankenstein's monster does throughout the whole movie and reacts. I mean, he killed Fritz because Fritz wouldn't stop fucking with him with yeah. the torch. He kills the do- Dr. Waldheimer because he was trying to cut him open while he was still alive. And then this young girl is an innocent moment where he is like just thinking about throwing, you know, and yes, she says, you're hurting me. How does he register that? I don't know. But in the moment after he realizes she's died, he is full of guilt, runs away, staring at his hands. If he was evil, he would have put his hand on her head and kept her underwater until she drowned and got a maniacal glee out of that. This is much more, as you said, an innocent mistake um, and how we react to it, I think. Is it says something about us as we're watching the movie? Agreed, and and it's the to me this is the magic of the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's Karloff, and it's how how we feel about this creature. Yeah, we go back to the Frankenstein house, and Elizabeth before the wedding, which you're not supposed to do, calls Frankenstein in to talk because she is freaking out. Mm-hmm. She doesn't. She's scared. She doesn't know why Waldman is wait, late to the wedding. Of course, we know why. Yeah. And she just has this premonition that something bad is going to happen. I feel it. I can't get it out of my mind. You're just nervous. All the excitement and preparation. Even like she, he kind of tries to reassure her, and she even does the no, no, I'm okay. But then it's really clear she's not okay. Mm. Um, and as she's continuing to express her fear about the situation. In comes Victor, asks him to come out to tell him that Dr. Waldman's been murdered in the tower and the monster has been seen in the hills terrorizing the mountainside, which I don't know exactly what they've seen. And then we hear a groan and they realize that the creature's in the house and they run upstairs to look around. And of course, the creature is not upstairs because we're back in the room with Elizabeth and she is facing away from the window and we see the monster enter the room behind her. And this is very much out of the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, one of the mm. great uh, German expressionism films. And he comes up behind her. And man, this is this is really scary. Yeah. What do you think he was here to do? First of all, I don't know how he found the house. Let's put that on the table. I don't know how he figured out where the house is. But second of all, when he comes into the room, 
it's a bit of suspension disbelief that a thing this size wouldn't make noise climbing through a window sure. stomping down onto the floor. So I'm concerned of how Elizabeth can sense in some kind of universal ESP way that there's something going on that's wrong, but cannot hear the creature coming up behind her. I I don't know what he's there to do, but the face he has is one of like almost fascination at this woman, right? And maybe an instinct that he does have some sort of a physical attraction to her and doesn't know quite how to express that, right? So he almost, you could argue, rapes her. And certainly the reaction on the bed, you could argue that it has shades of that possibility. Um, uh, and I say this because I, and I say this after having watched a video last night of of um, an, unfor- an unfortunate person in Long Beach who sexually assaulted a beautician who was leaving uh, to go to lunch. And oh. he exposed himself, jumped on her. And it, a man who was just standing outside having a drink or whatever at one of the local eateries there jumped in the way and pushed this man off and the man ran off, right? So, it's, But clearly it's a man who's not mentally there, is not uh, in his full capacity to do the things that he did and brought daylight to this young woman, right? He just jumped on top of her, had exposed himself, probably was trying to sexually assault her, uh, obviously, but like was pushed away by someone who was there. So this idea of seeing what Frankenstein does, I couldn't help but think in this moment, especially the way the Elizabeth reacts, and as we find out later on how messed up she is from the attack, it feels like maybe he was trying to sexually assault her. I mean, I think it's a perfectly good theory. I'll, I'll tell you the weird thought that I had about it mm. is that in the book, mm. and in my understanding is basically all the plays, including the play that they bought mm-hmm. by Peggy Webling, I think was her name, that did the 1929 play, yeah. is they have the Bride of Frankenstein as part of the story, which is oh. what later becomes the Bride of Frankenstein oh is from the book, which is that Frankenstein, who has learned a lot, I'm sorry, the monster who has learned a lot of stuff, goes back to Victor Frankenstein and says, make me a wife. Yeah. And they start to do it. And then Frankenstein changes his mind and destroys the wife, mm-hmm. which leads the creature to come and kill Elizabeth, to kill his fiance oh, as revenge. And so what I wonder is they obviously made the choice to not include any of that yeah. in this movie. And they also, at the time, didn't see that they were going to have sequels because of the way this ends. They didn't, oh, sure. Their intention wasn't that there were going to be sequels. And so I feel like giving the threat to Elizabeth in this film was a way to sort of sneak in a little bit of that tension mm. that from that story, even though they don't include that whole story. Interesting. Okay. Um, that's my theory. Anyway, they hear the screaming. They come rushing down just as the monster escapes. The shot of Elizabeth, as you said, lying on the bed yeah. in that position is certainly very evocative. Um, and then we cut to the dad of the little girl carrying that child through the town and you watch, there's all the partying in the town for the wedding and each step that he takes as people see him carrying this dead body, you see the the party die and the reaction to it. And by the way, this, cause I used to teach it when I taught film school is the, this real, the way he's carrying that girl reminds me of the mom carrying the child in the Odessa step sequence in battleship Potemkin. Mm. She's carrying the dead child up the stairs. It's the way that the kid is kind of hanging from his arms, the dead look on his face. It it really, really looks like Eisenstein to me. Yeah. And the burgermeister comes out and says, what is it? What is it? Maria. She's drowned. My poor man, 
Why'd you bring her here to me? But she has been murdered. Yeah. Which I don't know how he knows that that's right. what happened. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but needless to say, you know, we're about to have our, our crazy mob. Yeah. There can be no wedding while this horrible creation of mine is still alive. I made him with these hands, and with these hands, I'll destroy him. It's a perfect launch into the final act of our film, I think. Yeah. Um, and then he says, and this is what I what we mentioned before, is he says to Victor, You stay here and look after Elizabeth. I leave her in your care. Whatever happens, you understand? In your care. And this is, you know, <laughs> the setup for that movie going a real different way. Yeah. We're back with the Burgermeister who's giving his orders to the town and everyone's got their tortures. And again, this is a this is a cliche that we would see in a ton of movies and cartoons yep. and everything later on. But it's so well done here yeah. of the crate. And, and, and it's funny, too, because Night of the Hunter also has the lynch mob at the end of the film right. going off. And I'm just wondering, as you watch the whole town come together to hunt down the creature, how are you feeling as an audience member? Well, of course. I mean, just like you understand why, but you also feel sympathy for the monster because it doesn't understand what it's doing. And it's been left alone by the, the creator, by his creator. He's been left alone to fend for himself by his creator. And now his creator, instead of owning up to the fact that they dropped the ball or failed their creation, his answer is to destroy it with the same hands that he created it. Um, so I think there's a level of not wanting to take responsibility for what he has done here in this moment. Uh, and so seeing the town freak out because the town is going to react like the creature reacted, right? You could argue that a lot of the times when you have a town that reacts in a way that they like this with a lynch mob, you can cut this out or attacking a capital, they lose their minds uh, and become obsessed with attacking the thing that they have convinced themselves is a danger to who they are. Right. And so they, in a way become the creature. They don't become an intelligent, well thought out, analytical, rational creation. The mob becomes in a way, the Frankenstein creature, whatever it is, it must single-mindedly destroy it in order to satisfy itself. And so when you see this, I just feel like it's a tragedy more than a horror or, or anything else other than that. So I have three, three separate thoughts. One is mm -hmm. something that I had mentioned. We just did a watch along for room 237, which yeah. is available on Patreon. If you want to check it out. And one of the things I brought up was this book that I'm listening to that is a uh, Daniel Kahneman called thinking fast and slow. And one of the things, which is a book about psychology and how your brain works. And one of the things that he brings up multiple times is the only information that you have, you see as the only information there is, right? That's how humans respond. Yes. They, they don't go, I've learned this thing. And there, but there's probably other stuff out there I don't know. Right. They go, I've learned this thing, and therefore that is the truth. All they know about the creature, or all they knew of January 6th, or whatever other conspiracy theory or thing, they are acting because that's true, because they know that that's true. They know that this creature is an evil, you know, monster that's attacking yeah. innocence. Yeah. They're 100%. So their actions make perfect sense, but we know stuff that they don't. The second thought that I had was as you were talking about, um, the God that made him not caring for him, I suddenly went, oh, this is, you know, we're in the 20th century. Mm. We're post Nietzsche. 
post the ideas that God is dead. God is the promise that I have made you in my image and I'm going to take care of you. And then God has been absent. And how do you feel about God, about the world? How do we behave in the world when the moral creator doesn't seem to be showing his face? Yeah. You know, this is, you got to figure it out on your own. And that's what the creature has been doing. Not necessarily that successfully. And the third thought I have is more of a film thought, which is that the idea of the unstoppable monster who is slowly coming to get you is obviously in all sorts of horror movies. You know, it's Michael Myers, it's it's uh, Freddy Krueger, it's, you know, it's all those characters, right? Um, the difference with Frankenstein is I don't feel bad for Michael Myers. Right, 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 right. Yeah. You know, I don't feel bad for the mummy. I don't feel bad for, like, I do feel bad for the Wolfman. You know, mm-hmm. but like, but like, but in a different way, but like Frank, I genuinely feel terrible as this mob is coming after him. The shots are beautiful. We're going to, this is mostly shot in the back lot and shot on stages, a whole bunch of people with torches. It's beautiful shadows, beautiful lighting. And at one point we come across a guy who is unconscious, obviously stunned by the creature. I had no idea Not of this. Killed. Not Still killed. Alive. Yep. Yeah. Well, because as the creature, other than the little girl who he didn't mean to kill, he hasn't hurt anybody who wasn't trying to hurt him. Right. You know, that unconscious guy or partially conscious guy is Francis Ford, John Ford's brother. (laughs) That's awesome. Which is why John Ford came to Hollywood, because Francis Ford was working as a stuntman and a small bit actor. And that's why John Ford came, who later became one of the great directors of all time. And Francis is still doing gigs, you know? (laughs) Um, and everybody splits up and Frankenstein ends up going one way when the group that he's with goes the other way and he ends up alone and we see the creature is watching him and spots him alone again, really scary. And the moment when he rises up and the two face each other, monster versus man, you know, creator versus created, it's an, another amazing film moment, I think. And they fight. And Frankenstein gets thrown down and he gets up again and tries to fight back because he'd said that he had to kill this creature. He created him. He's courageously trying to fight back and he is overpowered and the creature grabs him and drags him up into the windmill, um, which was built on the back lot. And by the way, it's, it's, it's a full scale tower for the lower levels. Mm -hmm. And then the top is all foreshortened and matted in and models and things like that using some film trickery. Um, and Karloff carries Colin Clive up these stairs, which apparently messed his back up for the rest of his life. So I'm going to throw something out there and I don't know how much of it is true, but I've read in a couple of spots that, um, uh, the director James whale was a little jealous of how the monster was becoming the focus. Mm. And so he made Karloff carry Colin Clive's body, multiple takes up the stairs. Clive apparently did, said let's get a dummy he can carry me uh but james refused so i don't know how much of that is true but i've read it in a few locations so i mean directors are jerks <laughs> I think can be. sometimes yes um and we get up to sort of the top room of the windmill where these be- cool gear giant gear i don't know what you call them that are turning with the wind yeah and that creates this thing where th- between them as they're up there it's a super super cool set all the townspeople are trying to find Frankenstein and realize that they're up there. Yeah. Um, and I love the moment where Henry gets up and is crawling towards the tree creature 
and then they end up separated by that whatever that gear thing is and we yeah. see their faces through it as they're circling around each other it's all really great yeah. and then we fight and we're up outside on the top of the windmill the townspeople down below see the battle they see him there and then we see henry's body fly off the roof of the windmill land on one of those the the fans and and then fall down to the ground and i'm like he's dead like yeah, gotta be dead um which was the original intention was that he was dead but then they decided they wanted to keep him alive so we see that he's still alive and then the townspeople with the creature up on the top of the windmill screaming they run with their torches and they light that windmill on fire yeah and first of all it looks great I mean, just yeah. in terms of burning down that windmill, it's really, really scary. The creature's reaction to the fire is really scary. And I I didn't remember that he died when I was watching yeah. it this time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I know about Bride of Frankenstein. So I just assumed that he lives. And, but no, that's not really what happens. He is trapped in the fire and the fire slowly engulfs him and that. And it is horrible to watch. And then we fade out and we cut to the maids with the bottle of wine and they run up to the, they seem very happy with the Frankensteins and yeah. they come up to the very Baron. Giggly. Very yeah. giggly, Steve. And he's coming out the door of a room and in the room, we can just see Elizabeth and who we think is Henry Frankenstein recovering on a bed. Although Colin Clive had flown back to London at this point. That's not him. That's some other guy, um, which is why the Baron closes the door so quickly. and takes the wine for himself. As I said before, I say again, here's, Here's to a son, to the house of Frankenstein. And they all toast and laugh. And that is the end of the film. Such a terrible ending. Yeah, <laughs> it's, I, I, it's awful. Right? It's such a fantastic ending up until that moment. And then you're like, why, why do we need this? And maybe because Colin had already flown back to London, but an, an interaction between him and Elizabeth there at the end, I think would have been much more interesting uh to have you know contemplating what they've done what that what he created and then maybe even hinting at his still uh how can i say this um not dormant but still still alive obsession uh at saying well if i were to do it again i would do it better a second time or whatever so then you could hint at a sequel but of course as you said who was thinking about sequels at this time? Uh, nobody, but maybe that could have been an interesting thing to throw in there. But this ending with the with the caricature of this, his dad was just ridiculous. I, I to me, all of this is sort of we're just cranking out movies, and we didn't know what we had, you know, <laughs> yes. because we didn't know we were going to do a sequel. We didn't know the kind of hit this was going to be. Mm. I don't think they knew how sympathetic Karloff's version of the creature was going to be. Yeah, right? that's a good. And point. So all the emotions are sort of in the wrong place for yeah. this scene and they're just like we just got to wrap the you know we decided he's alive let's just wrap this up happy ending yeah and move on uh we do have credits again at the end which i can't remember a lot of movies at this era that had credits both at the yeah. beginning and the end but the nice thing we get is now boris karloff's name is listed there mm -hmm. by the way he wasn't even invited to the previews <laughs> because they didn't because it's a monster movie and he's just playing the monster right. they just didn't understand what was going on they started to realize they might have a hit. They did a bunch of the stuff that we've heard for other horror movies is they had ambulances parked in front of all the theaters where it played. They had warnings. They had nurses there in case people have heart attacks, all that stuff to build stuff up. The budget of this movie was $290,000. Mm. It was a huge hit. 
way bigger than Dracula. Dracula made $700,000. This made $1.4 million. By 1953, with all of the re-releases it had yeah. had, it had made $12 million. Wow. Which, by, by today's standards, doesn't sound like anything at all. But when Dracula made seven hundred grand and was a hit, and this made one point four, and then twelve million over the next twelve, you know, twenty years, yeah, that is pretty damn amazing. And of course, Karloff becomes a huge star, and Universal suddenly goes, "We're in the monster movie business." And it's so funny because you know they tried to launch their monster universe, you know, was ten years ago now. Yeah, oh, the Dark Universe, Dark Universe, yeah. At the time, it seemed dumb, but now having done some research about how they did Frankenstein and then Karloff comes back to play the mummy and then we have the Wolfman and then we have Lugosi comes back and we have all these characters meeting each other in different movies and, you know, continuing these stories in these sequels. It's like it kind of maybe is the first universe, you know, in a weird way. It makes a lot of sense. Right. They're all connected. Sure. Um, uh, It sounds, by the way. Uh, it, as you mentioned, Colin Clive died at the age of 37 from pneumonia and alcoholism, yeah. uh, which is so tragic. James Whale, you know, his career just pretty much after 41, he didn't have much of a career. He made a few films during World War II, like for the Army, hmm. um, and then had multiple strokes in the 50s Oof. and committed suicide by drowning himself in the pool in 1957. Hmm. Um, and again, I would direct you to the Gods and Monsters film. Uh, it sounds like of all of them, Boris Karloff handled himself the best, saved his money, stayed a working actor, didn't get too upset when he, when the, his roles changed, ended up in TV, you know, and just kept working along until he passed away. Um, and that is everything that I have on Frankenstein. He bought a bunch of oil, oil wells oh, yeah? and he became, no, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. <laughs> I was like, really? Um, <laughs> that's really smart. Yeah, people in those times, what, what do you do in those moments? What do you do when you can't do it anymore? That's why sometimes being the bit actors yeah. is a smart way to go because you understand, you don't have the um, ego about it, and that can end up serving you in the long run. You know. Yeah. Um, here are my final thoughts. Okay. Is that this movie, I think, in a weird way, it's bigger than itself. Mm. because there are elements, as we said, the dad and the final scene and, you know, the, where it's like the movie's not a hundred percent works and, you know, it's far from a perfect film, I would right. say, but the stuff that does work and that's, uh, Henry Frankenstein's performance. That's the cinematography. That is the incredible art design and man, Boris Karloff, like when he shows up, it is a, it is a Hollywood moment. It is a legendary moment and it spawns, it, 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 I think more than Dracula, more than Hunchback of Notre Dame, more than uh, Phantom of the Opera. There's certainly been scary movies before this, but this movie and the character of Frankenstein establishes its own thing that is, like I said, I think it's bigger than the film itself. Um, and and I'm putting a big hunk of that just with Boris Karloff's performance for me. Hmm. What what do you think? I think for me overall, this is a film that is um, was a absolute joy to revisit again and remember why me and you and so many people love classic films because there's something really fantastic about understanding the joy and power of the story of these films and how they can bring them to life in ways even back in the 1930s 
and setting it, as you said, Steve, earlier, somewhere around the 19th century, somewhere there, and making it all work and making it feel still somewhat relevant to what we're going through today, but also very much of its time. And that's what makes these things such great classic movies. This was so much fun. Steve, you said it so well. The things that work, work so well to leave an impression on you, to understand that James Well was a damn good director, that Colin Clive was a fantastic actor, that Boris Koloff really brought this character to life in ways that were memorable and left a lack, a legacy that not only spawned sequels, but also spawned things like the monsters and other things yeah. to come down the pike that were connected to this. And I like that all of that is a part of this film. And so the reason we're celebrating Halloween, well, one of the big reasons we celebrate Halloween, one of the big reasons we enjoy watching scary movies at Halloween are because of these original universal black and white scary movies that not only, as you say, may have been the birth of science fiction, but also the real birth of horror totally. taking the mantle over from uh, the German expressionism into something even more uh, mainstream and Amer uh, in on American shores here with something like Frankenstein and Dracula and Wolfman. But really, Frankenstein, to me, stands out as one of the jewels in the universal uh, monster movie um, universe that was created back then and still endures now in 2023 to leave a lasting effect on you and I who are lovers of cinema. So that's my final thoughts. Thank God it was made. Thank God we enjoyed it. And thank God it still endures. And for any of you who are going to try it for the first time or rewatch it again after listening to us, we hope you enjoyed it as much as we did watching it again. So that's what we think of James Whale's Frankenstein. We'd love to hear your thoughts on our Facebook page. You can do a search for The Cinephiles. You can uh, follow the show on Twitter at Cine underscore files, on Instagram at The Cinephiles Podcast. You can subscribe to the show at all the usual places, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and YouTube. If you're on YouTube and leave a comment, please leave them there. We'd love to interact with you. And if you're on Apple Podcasts and haven't left, left a review yet, well, we'd love you to leave us a five-star review. We'll always check them out, and occasionally we read them on the show right here. Mm. And if you, we've mentioned it several times, if you can support the show at patreon.com slash the cinephiles, you could start it as little as a dollar a month, which isn't very month much. And for that, you can get updates and schedules on what's coming up on the cinephiles. And you could follow me at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. John, how would people find you? You can always find me at the Roca says on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, the Outlaw Nation on Twitch, and my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash John Roca says, where I do all my reviews and have trailer reactions and also have wonderful guests like Steve Morris and Michael Vogel and Shannon McClung and I doing the Geek Buddies and the Hot Mic and all the things in Jedi Way that go on there on the channel. So please check it out if you haven't checked it out yet. And I think that's it for this week. We hope all of you have a fantastic Halloween. Yes. And we will see you next week on The Cinephiles for another great film.